From the silver screen to the GM screen, Never Say Die asks, what can we learn from movies to enhance our RPG experience? This season, we're all about kids on bikes movies, where a group of kids 18 years of age or younger get themselves into and out of trouble and keep their agency while doing so, usually in a specific location, which is essential to the plot. I'm Rafe, film critic. And I'm Drew, game enthusiast. And today, we're talking 2018's The Kid Who Would Be King, written and directed by Attack the Block creator Joe Cornish, and starring Louis Ashbourne Circus, Tom Taylor, Rebecca Ferguson, and Patrick Stewart, among others. This episode will contain spoilers for the movie, so consider yourself warned. While we're talking about the cast members, I do want to in- mention uh, Louis Ashbourne Circus is son of Andy Circus, best known for playing Gollum in the Lord of the Rings movies, is that relevant to the movie discussion? It very well may be. Yeah, and I, I think also if this is something that listeners haven't watched, well, you know, watch it yes. and then come back to this. But if you're like me and didn't find out that information ahead of time, uh, you might spend the entire movie going, who does that kid look like? <laughs> I know I've seen this kid somewhere. Who does that kid look like? I did the exact same thing. I kept looking and going, what else have I seen him in? And not much. But uh, yeah, so he's uh, Andy Serkis's son. So and it's important to, to state that he looks like Andy Serkis and not Gollum. I mean, I think that's <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is important. So we always start with our elevator pitch. This was my pick of a movie, so it's my turn for the elevator pitch, and that is a kid finds the legendary Excalibur and is called to action to lead a new round table of knights against the evil Morgana as she attempts to take over a world distraught by poor leadership and politics. This came out in 2018, 2019. Important to know. <laughs> right, right. This is a movie that is a response film, clearly. Joe Cornish, the only other film that he has written and directed was, of course, Attack the Block, a film we've already talked about. There's a lot of echoes to similar themes that he carried through. And one of the things I really like about your elevator pitch is I don't think you mentioned it's a modern film. Because it wasn't mentioned in anything that I searched, and I thought we were going to do a time travel movie. <laughs> oh, did you? I did. Oh, oh, okay. Well, that's interesting, because I knew I knew it was a, a modern film in which the kid finds the sword. But what I love about your pitch is it works regardless of the time period. Um, and when we start talking about the truth of the film, it's going to work regardless of the system you're using as well. Because I feel like the message of this film is universal and, sadly, constant. Um, (laughs) especially in modern society. So yeah, it's definitely a response film. It was hard to watch it and not think about what was going on in the world in that time period. And also to think that maybe the kid lost because the world has gotten worse since then. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, COVID. (laughs) Right. Well, here's the thing too, Rafe, because we usually ask, why would you pick something like this? But folks who listened to our last episode know that this is a film that you and I went into completely blind. You selected this one because it was on a recommended list and we thought why not right yeah like yeah exactly but walk me through your kind of process too we kind of mentioned it the last time but i'm just kind of curious what you were thinking when you decided on this film and just the experience of going into a movie recommending a movie to 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 be a part of this podcast without having seen it well i I had looked at this list we we this is a list that that's constantly updated i guess uh through the kids on bikes facebook group 
I, I wanted something, everything I'd chosen up till now had pretty much been a nostalgia piece. And I wanted yeah. to break away from that. Not that, I mean, we were having great conversations about what I think are great movies, but I wanted something that broke away from that trend for me. So I had picked two modern films and gave you kind of the, the, the choice of, of which direction to go. And we went with the unseen one. And I, I because it had been highly recommended. Because it was on this this list, and because it's Joe Cornish, and I, the more I think about Attack the Block since I watched it, because I had gone into that movie pretty much blind too. It was just, right. it was your pick. The the more I just really appreciate his filmmaking style, and so this was a chance to see. Okay, was that a fluke, or is this is is he really this talented of a filmmaker, of a storyteller? And I I think the answer is he really is this talented of a storyteller. At least in this genre, which is all he's really played in, is the, this kids on bikes subgenre. Yeah, and I think you know, for folks who maybe aren't familiar with Cornish's writing credits, you know, this and Attack the Block are the two films that he, he directed. But he's also um, he was a co-writer of the Adventures of Tintin animated film with right. Stephen Moffat of Doctor Who fame. He helped um, did some touch-ups on the Ant Man movies too. So like, there's a certain level of fun and adventure and excitement, but also comedy, but also there's a certain level of politic. Um, I think he <laughs> really pulls good performances out of kids. And I, I don't know what George Cornish's next film is going to be. But honestly, I'm I'm looking forward to reviewing his next Kids on Bikes film. Right. Because I think he's he's pulling good performances from kids. He has a good sense of adventure. Uh, and yeah, I mean, we're going to talk all about that here in just a moment. Yeah. The movie is well-received. It does sit at 90% on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, uh, although the audience score is not quite as kind sitting at 55%, which I don't quite understand because I totally dug this movie as I watched it. Yeah, I think I think when we talk a little bit more about the film, I can offer up a couple of reasons. I think it's possibly also similar to why we had low scores on Now and Then. I would mm. I would guess maybe the results are probably the same. Uh, and, and it might have to do with the fact that the film is a response film to the politics of 2016 and beyond. And not everyone agrees with the politics or not not agrees with the politics. Right. But but this is this is important. You and I went into this blind. Yes. It was recommended on a list, but we hadn't seen it before we decided that we were going to do it next. So the question then becomes, Rafe, is the kid who would be king a kids on bikes movie man by our definition okay and going back and i've done this before i know i i play this card almost every episode that we do this a group of kids 18 years of age or younger check get check. themselves into and out of trouble check and keep their agency check usually in a specific location oops <laughs> check <laughs> Uh, they travel quite a bit of England. <laughs> Correct. And you have just answered the question. In, usually in a specific location, which is essential to the plot. Oh, that's true. This is an Arthurian legend. It is all about, it's about a united kingdom. And that's exactly what Arthur is about. That's um, true. And I think the specific location is the UK. Now, granted, we are talking about politics. We are talking about not everyone in the United Kingdom is is 100% behind <laughs> staying in the United Kingdom, staying in Europe. There's there's a lot of mixed politics that plays into it. But at, at the same time, looking at it, I think the part is, we definitely mentioned this right now, there are no bikes. Yeah, that's what was going to be my next point. Yeah. <laughs> at all. However, we also said that bikes were not necessary for this because right. it's the mode of transportation. The kids walk. They ride horses. There is some vehicle stuff. 
And while I think the smallest problem that I have with this film could be fixed by putting in some bikes, I think it still fits our kids on bikes theme. Yeah. Mainly because it's still a neighborhood and one whole act of this takes place at a school. It is still a local location, even though it kind of says that distance is relative in this film, right? Right. You can travel hundreds of kilometers. I said miles. Um, (laughs) But because a lot of the traveling is instantaneous, it's not, for instance, a road trip film. Right. Does still, I think, fall into the parameters. It's very loose on that aspect. But the other parts of it, especially the kids have agency, is so incredibly strong. You said check. I think it's check, check. Oh, the the kids having agency, in case I forget to bring it up later on, one of the things I loved about this being said in modern times is the way they deal with cell phones in the plot of this is the problem is so big and so specific to the situation the kids are in. Who are they going to call? There's, there's, They have their cell phones, but they're of absolute no use to them because they can't do anything with them. They could call other children. Right? right? They could all other kids and other teens. But the nice thing about it is we don't need it. And not only do the kids in this film have agency, the adults have none. Right. The adults have zero agency. So because unlike they Attack disappear. the <laughs> Right. So unlike Attack the Block or Super 8, where the they were actively antagonistic to the kids, like where they were specifically there to kind of railroad the kids. This is like this is the ultimate kids power fantasy. Yeah. There's magic involved. They get to wield weapons, they get to trash their school, and more importantly, all of the adults either disappear or are mind-controlled. Right. Um, which is, like, kind of didn't sit with me, uh, sit with me kind of great, but then I realized, this is not a movie for me. <laughs> like, right. We need to say on the outset that this is a kid's movie. This is not a teen's movie. This is, this is a kid's movie. But the thing I love about that, the thing that I walked away from this movie feeling is, you know, we watched, we've watched The Goonies, we've watched Lost Boys, again, those nostalgia based mm-hmm. films, that it's very easy also to sit back and say, well, they don't make films like that anymore. Here's that film. He, Joe yeah. Cornish is making films like that still. Just they're not for us. They're for a younger generation that will, over time, become nostalgic for this film. Yeah, which is why the audience score is kind of surprising, uh, you know. Yeah. But I watched this film, and I, I will – let's just say this. that The first five minutes of it has some of the most amazing animation I've seen oh, in a very long God. time. Teenage me would have eaten that up with yes. a spoon. And, and just watching this film, if this had been my introduction to the Arthurian legend, I would have been fine. And I immediately started sending out, <laughs> we're playing our hand. We like this movie. I'm, so <laughs> I would have immediately sent out like links to this film to like people I know whose kids are of, a, of an appropriate age. And it's like, listen, you're, I know you. I know your kids. You're both going to love this if you haven't seen it. Um, yeah. So yeah, this is a this is a good one. Let's let's get into it. Let's actually what before you- we get into it, I want to discuss uh, a, a kind of a, an adjacent thing, and that is the hero's journey. 
Now, if listeners are not familiar with the concept of the hero's journey, this is uh, basically a concept that was brought up by Joseph Campbell. This, This idea that our stories take the same narrative archetypal style. And so he created this monomyth, or he outlined what he feels like is this monomyth called the hero's journey. Any of your favorite movies that you've seen probably follow this format, just because this is the storytelling that has kind of come up with mankind over the ages, regardless of the cultural, regardless of our background, this diagram of the hero's journey, and and then has kind of been uh, exploited, I think is the word I want to use, uh, by like the Disney company. Like if you look at the Disney renaissance that started in the, the late 80s and went on, that's because they read Joseph Campbell and went, hey, this sounds like a good idea. All of our movies need to follow this format. And sure enough, you watch Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, you know, all those kind of movies follow this because they specifically gave it to the writers and said, follow this formula. So most of your favorite movies have this, this idea that we're introduced to the ordinary world. There is a call to adventure for our hero. They often refuse that call at first, and then they follow it. There's usually a mentor figure along the way. So you you follow this myth if you like movies like Star Wars. You know, George Lucas was a huge fan of Joseph Campbell. Harry Potter I don't know if Rowling intentionally did it, but it's there. And and the reason I want to bring that up is because this movie is not only built on that formula, but it pays tribute to so many other stories that also use that formula. Star Wars is mentioned repeatedly in this movie. Harry Potter is mentioned. Uh, Lord of the Rings is mentioned, and Tolkien followed this. So I wanted to make sure we had kind of just addressed this hero's journey. If you don't know more about it, just just do a quick Google search for the hero's journey. You'll find the, the layout of that format, that narrative archetypal structure that exists. Because this movie definitely follows it. I mean, it's very clear that Joe Cornish knew and Newt was familiar with this format when he wrote this movie. Yeah, and I think, I mean, just for some clarification, too, while Joseph Campbell created and named it The Hero's Journey, this is a template that existed before Campbell. Campbell got this from reading all the mythology of many, many cultures and just going, wow, they all have this in common, especially the stories that have survived. It's easy to tell a story, uh, and it's easy to remember a story if it's familiar to the listener, and it's easy to tell it if it's to the, the teller. So um, so yeah, Drew does is, a better job of explaining the idea that Rafe wanted to bring onto the show. <laughs> but the nice thing is, if you just look at the simple circular template, you can lay it on, and it doesn't have to be just adventure films. Like, even modern writers like Dan Harmon, who who did the television show Community, Harmon's very famous for, for looking at the hero's journey and putting it in uh, comedies and dramas. Um, right. You know, like sitcoms. There's you can use the hero series. So there's a there's a lot going on. Game masters. The hero's journey is is such an easy template for just general truths. If you wanted to just go, well, what what should I do next with my players? You could just <laughs> look down at the hero's journey and go, well, this is what would happen in any classic story. Why not apply it to anything? I've used it in my writing. I have sure. done supernatural gangster stories that have used the hero's journey. Um, <laughs> A number of times in, in some of my stuff. So yeah, Joseph Campbell, love me some Joseph Campbell. And you're absolutely right. This is a this is a good time to kind of look this up because, like you said, Cornish definitely paid attention to it. Yeah. All right. So when we discuss the movie, we usually discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly. What were the highlights, the bad bits, and the worst bits? We will, as we usually do, start with the good. So Drew, what's the good for you about this movie? Boy, there's so much. So a couple of things here. Uh, we, we did mention the opening animation 
if you are showing this to kids, that's going to get their attention. Yeah. Um, they did not skimp on that animation. It's really, it's very cool. It's dynamic. It grabs your attention. It goes on long enough. You've got Patrick Stewart narrating over it, which is you know never a bad thing. So right from the get-go, as opposed to, you know, they could have made this mistake of just having Patrick Stewart just narrating over a blank screen or slowly zooming in over Stonehenge or uh, a book opening and showing King Arthur and the Knights <laughs> of the Round Table and having words appear on the screen. This, You know, <laughs> there are great movies that have done that. This is a great movie that didn't do that. They just kind of went ahead and I think they knew what they had and uh, they really got you right off the hook. So um, I, I think that was excellent. Yeah. And as I said, teenage me would have eaten that up. I remember I was a huge Arthurian Legends fan as a teenager, you know, and, and so, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic opening animation. I'm going to hit on the, the thing that we normally knock movies for. Uh, so much good things to talk about with this movie. But I do want to point out, we have diversity. Mm-hmm. We have four kids. One of them is a girl. Two of them are people of color. Joe Cornish gave us diversity before with Attack the Block. Most of these classic movies we've been hitting on for not being very diverse. Apparently, we just need Joe Cornish to just keep making kids on bikes movies to finally (laughs) give us that diversity that has been lacking in the genre for so long. Well, I also think it's just a a reflection of modern filmmaking as well. But I think Cornish definitely has, and again, this goes back to it, the sense of place. Um, He is showing us a reflection of what you would see in a UK school, a London school, and it you know, we were talking about our main characters, but, you know, at the second second and third act of this, we are actually, you know, in all acts of this, we're getting shots of what a classroom would look like mm-hmm. at the school and just diversity across the board. I have some thoughts about the diversity, but I want to talk about that in a little bit on what I think would have actually been a better story. But I, I agree. And it's not just the diversity of the kids, too. There are some adults yes. in this film, and they're incredibly diverse as well. So that's – you agree. It's very nice to see. Let's talk about the kids. Uh, I think, on the whole, Joe Cornish gets really good performances out of kids. I know I mentioned it already, but Agreed. I'm just going to say it again. I did not get bored watching the kids in this film. So that's hugely, hugely important because there are films that we have been asked to talk about, and we probably aren't just because it's really hard to watch them because the kids are so bad. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the, the performances from the kids, which is good because they are in the spotlight. You know, this mm-hmm. is their story. Uh, as we said, you know, it is about the kids. They're the ones who have agency and their performances are, are really good. I can't think of a flawed moment. There was, a, I, I wish there was a little more character development for one of them. Maybe that's getting into that in the bad, but the performances themselves were good. So yeah, definitely yeah. agree. Well, while we're talking about the kids, let's talk about the one outsider who's kind of a kid, but not really. And that is Merton. AKA Merlin, who has a brilliant, wide eyed, but yet know it all performance uh, in this. That this is, he's very obviously not of this time, and yet his performance is so condescending at times <laughs> and, and just weird. And like, I particularly like the way that they decided to do. Merlin's spells, that it's all these hand gestures and claps and finger pops and all this kind of stuff. And it's not that far removed from how they do spells in Doctor Strange 
except they don't really accentuate those gestures with special effects the way they do in Doctor Strange. They start to a little bit in here and there, but for the most part, it just looks like a dude doing some really weird combination of hand gestures and and smacks and slaps and all that kind of stuff. And the first time I saw it, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this, this is a joke, right? And by the end of the movie, I was like, no, this is awesome. This is really good. Yeah, yeah, Angus Emery, or I think that's how you pronounce the last name, uh, does a fantastic job. Um, and it's a tough sell. Playing uh, an older man in a younger person's body, this is one of those things of, you know, fans of Doctor Who, this is something we've been getting for years, right? Right. It's, it, it is a tough sell. And to be not only out of place and out of age, but out of time, um, to know a different world and to interact with it, to also have to be exasperated, very manic, uh, and mm-hmm. pl- like you said, the hand gestures, the magic is very involved, um, and he has to repeat them exactly, and he has to repeat them very, very quickly. Yes. And uh, I imagine that that is – that's – I mean, whew, I couldn't do it. I tried. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest. I was just trying to think about how difficult that would be. Uh, and that uh, that form of magic is a younger person's game, I will tell you this. <laughs> But but not just not just exasperated because you mentioned that. But there's also a vulnerability to his character that we'll get into mm-hmm. when we talk about the gamification side of things. But I love how that plays out through his performance too. That when he gets to those moments of vulnerability where he no longer has his powers, where he feels like he has failed the the king, that also is just a really strong performance. Yeah, definitely. The strongest performance in the film, I would say, uh, for me especially. There's a couple more. I mean, you have some more good stuff you want to talk about? Because uh, uh, I, I definitely of do. Of course. Yeah. I think this film has something that uh, you need in a good kid's film, and that is a good bad guy. Because I think that it takes a lot to make Rebecca Ferguson scary and... I think she does a a pretty decent job with the limited amount of movement that she is allowed to do because she spends most of the film essentially vined to a stalactite. But in the final act, again, spoilers, she is a giant (laughs) monster. And the monster, and this is important, is legitimately scary. If I had seen this film as a five-year-old, I would have been watching with covered eyes behind the sofa. And I think that's it's something that we're shying away from for in kids films is an actual threat, a dangerous threat, a threat that could hurt children and is something that is visually striking and terrifying. Yeah, no, that was the next thing I wanted to bring up is Rebecca Ferguson in this movie. She's wonderful. Yes, she's hindered by her lack of movement, but there's also a part of me that feels like that accentuates her performance. But ultimately, Mm -hmm. the thing I love, and I've just experienced this with another actor recently where I watched them in this absolutely stupid movie one night and a brilliant psychological thriller the next night, and it was the same actor. And it was like, oh, he threw himself in 100%. He knew this was a stupid movie, and he still brought his A-game to the performance. And Rebecca Ferguson does that with this. It's not that this is a stupid movie, but she does not pull back on her performance because this is, quote, just a kid's movie type thing. You know, she uh, is fully involved in this, and I I loved her in this. I thought, what a great performance. And yeah, she's terrifying as the bad guy. And, you know, most of what she's involved with is CGI-based, so I don't know how often she's actually on set with the kids. So... If she's not, and the kids are, you know, for instance, acting against a tennis ball on a stick, uh, I think that just enhanced their their performance even more so. So I'm, I'm impressed with that one. My uh, next one is just the 
Again, as a teenager, I was thrilled with the Arthurian legend. I mean, hell, my license plate, my personalized license plate for my car says Merlin on it. You know, I'm just, I, I love the Arthurian legends. And the way that it is integrated into the movie so cleverly, you know, that, that someone like me who knows the myth can sit there and go, I get it. But the movie then isn't afraid to spell it out a little bit, knowing that, you know, again, younger audience, maybe they don't get. Okay, yeah, Lance is the, the nemesis at the beginning of the film. And of course, that makes sense. Lancelot, who will go on to portray Arthur. So the fact that they start on shaky ground to begin with is perfect. The fact that we have uh, Merton. You know, because Merlin ages backwards is something that's been added to the Arthurian legends over time. You know, Kay is the other the other knight. You know, Betty was very clearly right from the start. I was like, oh, that's short for Bedivere. You know, it's like the way it's integrated into the story is done in a way that I didn't feel was condescending. I didn't feel like it was patronizing. I thought it was very cleverly and deftly done in a way that pays tribute to the very story that this is using as a kind of its big MacGuffin. You know, and I, yeah. I, I love that. And the fact that the movie then acknowledges that, not only acknowledges that, but uses it to gain momentum, that this isn't coincidence, this is destiny. It's like, oh, yeah, that's clever. And I, th there are often times that I'll see something like that done and I'll hate it because it's mm -hmm. spelled out too much. It doesn't, it doesn't allow the audience to be clever enough to catch it. And in this case, I think it was done really well. And it's also explained because it knows the audience may not be familiar with it. And also it can use it to, to move the story forward. Yeah. This is an introduction to Arthurian legend. I think, I think if you've never heard it before and this is your introduction, you're, you've got a great start. If you are familiar with it, I think you will appreciate what is being put forward in front of you uh, in, in, in such a manner that you'll look, yeah, it's good. There was a brief moment where I'm like, oh, that feels a little heavy handed. I'm like, oh wait, this is the kids movie. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm not the target audience and yet I still love this film. So yeah, I, I agree. And my last good thing, uh, saving that what I feel is the kind of the best for last with this one is goes hand in hand with that is I think the message of the film is incredibly important because it doesn't shy away from the fact that the adults are screwing everything up. Like it's, they are, very, it's like there are new, every newspaper that is shown in the background has images of the military, politicians. Um, it has like in bold letters, war, doom, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like economic disaster and all this stuff is going on. And it's essentially it, the message, the takeaway is be kind to one another, especially moving forward because these are dark times, but any and all of us can can make a difference. It's sort of like into the spider verse. Anyone can wear the mask, you know, like that sort mm. of message. It's, it's fairly universal. It's like universal, but I don't feel like we're seeing it all that often. And I think in particularly in the UK, tying it to something like the Arthurian legend, is such a bold, but also very clever move that doesn't feel heavy handed. Right. The way they put, it they put it forward by the end when they go over the, their sort of chivalric codes it makes perfect sense. And I think, again, had I seen this as a young kid, there's probably – so my introduction to the Arthurian legend in, in media was uh, Borman's Excalibur. You know, that's mm. not a film that you should show to a five-year-old. And yet, we're recording this uh, on, the, on the birthday of one of my best friends. I remember going to his eighth birthday party and we watched Excalibur, eight-year-olds – Nudity, crows picking out eyeballs, you know, not 
not a kid's film. <laughs> See, my introduction was Disney's Sword in the Stone, which is based on T.H. White's The Once and Future King. I didn't find Borman's Excalibur until my teenage years when I was really obsessed and found it and was like, oh, this is this is brilliant. Yeah, I remember watching um, Sword in the Stone in the theaters at like as a 10-year-old going, right. yeah, I've seen this, but uh, where's, where's, where's the crows and the eyeballs? What's all, with, what's all this nonsense with squirrels in love? Uh, yeah. So, no, but, but, you know, that's the thing is we all come to it in very different ways. But the heart, the truths, if you will, of the Arthurian legend generally remain the same. And that and that's how you tell a good story, right? Like you, you right. they are they are true to the legend. They've taken it in a different step. I mean, we have just discovered probably the, some of the most good things we've discussed about a film. Yeah. There's got to be something wrong with this film, right, Rafe? There is. Uh, and you're not going to agree with me, I think. But I think the the one the, the one really bad thing that stands out to me is the film in a couple of spaces has some really dodgy CG work. Hmm. Morgana's Tower, when they travel to that, doesn't look realistic. And I thought Morgana's dragon-esque form, not in the climax, but the one before that, that kind of is like the back creature from Bram Stoker's Dracula, I thought it was not good CG. Yeah. Um. Again, this is the second time I'm mentioning this. I'm a Doctor Who fan. Um, so, <laughs> so bad special effects and CGI just come hand in hand with that. And I've sort of been trained over the years just to look, look past it uh, generally. But you're right. It's not amazing. Cornish did something really brilliant with the budget that they have, which is not an amazing budget considering the the sheer number of extras they have, especially in the third act, is that all the action takes place, uh, all the CG action takes place at night, and it's a lot easier to animate things at night. Uh, everything that you've described, for the most part, is taking place in the day, uh, with the exception of the Morgana Beast in the Underworld, which is lit weird. Um, yeah. But that's, when we get to the ugly, I'll talk about that. Um, but I, I think it's fair. I think that's absolutely fair. I think as a kid, I wouldn't have noticed at all. I I think I have a more discerning eye for special effects now in, in films. The kid, I was just super excited to see someone stab at a monster, you know, that kind of a thing. So also when I was a kid, it was all stop motion animation anyway. So, you know, like if they had done, if they Harryhausen this, I would have been even, even more thrilled. Um, I will say this, uh, for me, the bad is... I wanted more character development. I felt like um, the we only have four characters, and I couldn't really tell you who they were as characters, right? Because even if you laid the template of the knights that they were representing, even that's not really good development. You know, we we have two kids who are bullies, one kid who's who's sort of just. I mean, the way so it's interesting too. Morgana describes them, so I'm gonna want to go over with the way the Morgana describes them. Betters is meek and nothing without his friends. That's not only is she describing them; she's describing their weaknesses. But that's sort of his only character development. He's a Samwise Gamgee who I don't feel as inspired by. Lance is greedy and a bully. Kay is clever but callow uh, and beholden to the boy. Again, how she's describing it. Uh, and then Alex is clings to myths and trusts and lies. Um, now, they have positive qualities to them, but if you had asked me outside of the film what they would have been like on a um, on a regular school day, right. I couldn't really tell you. Uh, and I would have liked to have gotten some more character development, maybe a little backstory. Well, and Kay, I felt like her only real defining thing was that she was the sidekick for the bully. Like, she didn't mm-hmm. get any development whatsoever. And while I was really happy that 
there wasn't a, a forced romance, especially after doing Super 8 and <laughs> now and then, uh, you know, it was nice to, to have a, a story devoid of any kind of romance. I didn't feel like I knew who she was at all. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. Like, the only thing I can tell you about her is that she's played a lot of Mario Kart and and yeah. That's that's about it. It would have been interesting. Like we we go to Lance's house and Lance clearly has money, uh, so you kind of have it as a, a wealthy, privileged white kid who's also handsome. So like that's the a kind of a Lancelot character. I, I get right. that, right? Like Lancelot is a teen bully, but yeah. So that that's my real bad for this film is while I really liked the message and I liked the story and how it was sort of the setup and everything. The characters definitely needed to be more fleshed out, and I, yeah, I would have, I would have liked it. In fact, no one, none of the characters fleshed out. I, I have a better understanding of Merlin than anybody else. Yeah, but like, you know, we talked about the, the parents having no agency. Alex's mother doesn't even have a name, right? Like she's, she's just mom. Like there's, there's not a lot of. <laughs> There's not a lot going on as far as the personal stuff of it, which is a bummer because in something like Attack the Block, we have plenty of little character moments where you're like, oh, yeah, that's why Pest does that or or that's why, you know, Moses is going to do that. And I have a better understanding of what mm-hmm. those characters would do, even though there are more of them. So, yeah, it is what it is. Well, the other bad I have isn't really bad, but it's just a line that I take issue with. But I think you're supposed to take issue with it, which is when Alex's mom is telling him, and it's a lie at the point, uh, spoiler, it's a lie, um, but telling him that his father wanted him to be a good person, not the type of person who this, not the type of person who that, not the type of person who believes in fairy tales. And I was like, wait, so are you saying the type of person who believes in fairy tales is not a good person? Because I personally take issue with that. <laughs> and again, I think we're supposed to, but it just rubbed me the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, I, I think what we're dealing with is is a single mother who's who's dealing with a whole bunch of stuff and doesn't know how to respond when her child brings home a sword and has been punching people. Uh, I like, I, that just feels like the, the response of an, an exhausted mom. Um, and I, you know, it's, it's fine. It, it sets up that he is going to have to work to convince her and it plays into a a very important part of his chivalric code at the end. So I get it. I, I, I looked at that moment and went, yeah, he's got a book about Arthurian legends that plays a very important part in this this story, and you have a part to play in that. So that line seemed out of place, but it is also in many ways the setup that we get in a, any kind of classic story where the parent essentially says, you don't need to believe in this. This is not a real thing. The audience knows it's a real thing. Our hero knows it's a real thing uh, moving forward. I guess I have one more bad, uh, which is... There are moments where it really just feels like Alex's movie as opposed to yes. um, all of their movies. But as we get to the third act, that changes. Yes. But I, I was I was a little concerned moving forward in the film that this was just going to be similar to Super 8, a film where the um, group falls away and we are just focusing on one individual. Yes, he is the main character of the film, but we do in this the third act get a little bit more of them. Not as much as I would like that will reflect in my score, but... You know, it's bad. It's not ugly. I, I have one more bad, but again, I'm 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 actually kind of going to counter my own bad here, and that is <laughs> just something that I I've learned over time to look for as a film critic, and that is references that date the material because film is art. It should be something that stands 
the test of time. And there are, as we mentioned earlier, there's there's lots of references in this. Betty is, compares his relationship with Alex several times to Han and Chewie or Sam and Frodo. And, you know, there there's the, the comparisons to Luke Skywalker or Harry Potter and like Lance at one point calls him uh, Percy Jockstrap. And there's the Mario Kart reference. Now, the thing about all of those references is they kind of will stand the test of time. I mean, Mario Kart's been around for 20, 30 years now. So even that reference, the only one that stood out to me as like, really, is, and, and Drew, this is a question for you, I guess, is would you put Donkey and Shrek in the same scheme as Han and Chewie and Frodo and Sam? I hate to say it, but Shrek has been around for 20 years, bud. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Now, admittedly, um, nothing really new has been coming out with Shrek, but yeah, no, I agree. It does feel a, a bit off, but if, if, <laughs> one of the things that Cornish did when he was doing Attack the Block is he asked the, the kid actors what they would say. Right. So I'm curious if he also asked them about references. So that might have been a thing when they were writing the original script. It could be a, a kind of a vestigial script bit, or it might be something they're like, hey, look, we're really into Shrek. <laughs> Maybe there's an uh, there could be a UK uh, version uh, amusement park that has a, a donkey and Shrek ride. Fair enough. I don't know. Maybe it's still going. We listen. Puss in Boots has a new movie coming out this year. So yeah, maybe. <laughs> All right. The ugly. I have nothing I would consider ugly about this movie. So this I is do. this is all you. Yeah, I think the movie is a bit too long. Uh, it basically runs two hours. Two hours and one minute, including credits. Yeah, and so I and I, I didn't find it too long on first watch, but when I was watching it uh, again last night, uh, I started to feel like it was sagging a bit in the middle. And I think there's a there's a couple of things that I mean. Again, I'm not a professional screenwriter. Joe Cornish is. I think he did an amazing job. So you know, completely disregard this. But I almost feel like some of the middle bits could have been changed. And I would have liked it, I think, a little bit more for our purposes if they hadn't traveled the full length of the UK. Yeah. I think it's, it isn't as necessary. Um, going into the underworld ultimately plays into part of the chivalric code. I mean, there's, there's like sort of an emotional payoff, but I think all of that action, uh, the betrayal, the training, uh, the danger, all could have been done without the traveling. And I think they probably could have cut 15 or 20 minutes out of the film mm -hmm. and uh, in the second act. Uh, and I think that would have been fine. That's and fair. I have something I have something else that this is a weird place to put it, but I couldn't think of any other place to do it. And that is, I wonder how much more interesting this story would be if the actor playing Alex or just the Arthur character wasn't a white kid. I wonder how much more interesting this would have been if you had a character like Betters, who was a person of color, because Cornish is not going to shy away from telling a story that has a political overtone, clearly. How more interesting would this be if the character was maybe an immigrant or who was a first generation from the UK, you know, like whose parents came from somewhere else mm -hmm. who wasn't who wasn't white uh, or or who wasn't male. Uh, right. And the point of it is not that you look like King Arthur. It's that, that you are... Because there's chosen one narratives are tricky. Yes. They're real problematic. And they're actually really hard in role-playing games um, because 
A Chosen One narrative automatically puts one character in a higher tier story-wise, right. which is uh, than, than the other characters. But that's for the second half of this. All I'm saying is they could have shortened this up, and I think it would have been interesting if the meek character uh, turned out to be a good leader and maybe led, like, you know, or K could have been the character or something along those lines. Well, the meek so, character does end up leading. I will say that as far as character progression goes, that does happen. Yeah. But yes, I, yeah. I, I see what you're saying, and I agree. Yeah, that's that would be yeah. interesting. I, I, I guess I do have one ugly, and that is we've gotten almost completely through our film discussion portion and never mentioned Patrick Stewart being in the movie besides narrating the opening bit, which I think kind of talks about how superfluous his presence is. He was not needed in this movie. Not that I don't like Patrick Stewart, love seeing him, he's great. thought it was a little weird that his Led Zeppelin shirt changes color when he gets older uh, and then goes back to its original color when he gets younger, but um, the fact that we haven't mentioned him maybe says something when we have talked about all of the kid performers and the teen performer and Rebecca Ferguson. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's always nice to pe- see Patrick Stewart, but it is wholly unnecessary, and I think... Again, this speaks to the budget of the film, where they probably got Patrick Stewart in for like one or two days. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson probably was working on a, a soundstage and wasn't working. Was was probably ADR for uh, for a lot of the fight sequences and stuff. And maybe maybe that's just the the nature of the beast. But certainly, I took the film more seriously because Patrick Stewart and Rebecca Ferguson's name were attached. Right. Also, um, and if you go to when I picked the movie, I specifically brought up the fact that Patrick Stewart was in it. So yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's true. And there's a couple other people like Nick Muhammad is is it like for like the briefest of seconds as right. one of the teachers. But you know, if you, anyone's watching Ted Lasso, and if you're not, please watch Ted Lasso. So Nate the Great's in this. There's a couple of other folks in here who you know I I recognize only because I watch a lot of UK TV. So yeah, agreed, agreed. Uh, I don't think the movie gets better with more Patrick Stewart though. No, no, I don't <laughs> so. think it needs him at all. Frankly, not not that, again, not that he's bad, not that he's actually an ugly part of it, but just that it's an ugly thing that we got this far and didn't mention it. So, all yeah. right, let's move on from our film discussion to our "Which Kid Are You" segment. Drew, <laughs> which kid are you? Well, uh, it, I don't feel this is a bit of a cheat. I was I was Merton, not Merlin. I was Merton. Merton. I, was I knew that was the one you were going to say. Overly dramatic, shouting out nonsense, uh, you know, occasionally turning into a bird. Um, oh, I guess I guess maybe that might have been a bad thing, too. It's like you only, like, he turns into a bird like 20 times in the film. You only see it once. Every time he changes in, it cuts to everyone's reaction to it. Again, speaking to the budget of this film. Right. They did a lot with a very little <laughs> limited Oh, I don't budget. think that was a bad thing at all. Yeah. I thought that was an effective no. use of it. Yeah. Yeah, a very good. Yeah, no, I mean that's it's it's gonna be him or betters, and uh, uh, it's definitely it's definitely Merton. Yeah, okay. I uh, you know I shy away from putting myself in the the, the main character slot when we do these. Which kid are you? Because uh, you know I think it's a little egocentric to say that you were the the hero of the story, but I think I was Alex because I was obsessed with the Arthurian legend, and out of these kids, I wasn't the bully, and I. I definitely was not meek. So I think of the the four main kids, uh, or five if you include Merton. Uh, I think I was Alex. Well, I mean, it's you had you had said that you were kind of a Mikey character as well. Yeah. Um, when we were talking about the Goonies, I think that's perfectly fair. I think it's it's par for the course. Yeah. Well, there's not a lot to choose from. Um, right. But I almost think that's one of the movie's strengths. You know, I mean, let's not bring in all tw- a parallel of all 23 knights. Let's just have these. And then there were nice, like, there's a nice little reference when he's knighting the kids uh, as they get ready for the battle that he knights one of them, Hector. 
And, you know, yeah. that's another one of the Knights of the Round Table. It's like, it, it just, just thrown in as a second for someone like me to go, ah, there it is. You know? Yeah, I I think I think it would have been interesting too. They could have done more of that in the film where like when you get to that third act and, and the whole school is is you know, God, this is such a kid's fantasy. Right. Uh it's such an amazing like I I went trying to figure out what the term is to describe this actual film. You know, like not it's not a power fantasy per se. The kids the kids have power, but it's it's definitely like there's no adults. You have unlimited funds, right? Like you have used magic to get money. Um, you're allowed to use weapons. You're allowed to trash your school. You're allowed to mind control your teachers. But wouldn't it be cool if like, you know, they do something cool in that third act and, and like one of them's like, way to go. Um, I'm, I'm just, now I'm, I'm blanking. Galahad. Um, Galahad. Yeah. Like, like Galley. <laughs> yeah, I guess way Galahad's, to go, Galley. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Something like that. that yeah. Would it, would it, would it, wouldn't have hurt. Wouldn't have but, hurt, but like, how much is too much? Having it as just a little, I knight these sir Hector. You know, it, 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 there's a line there, and yeah, I think they could have gotten closer to the line, but I think too much would have been too much. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sure right. All right, so let's, let's rate this thing, man. Let's rate this thing for those uh, listening for the first time. We rate movies on a double axis. We rate them on a scale of one to ten. First, talking about how good of a movie it is. And then how good of a kids on bike movie it is. Uh, Drew, how good of a movie is this? You know, I mean, because you've said nothing positive about it the whole time. Yeah, it's funny. I'm looking at the score that I have written down here. and I'm like, really? It seems kind of low. Um, so I'm going to go with, I'm going to score this three times, actually. I think this movie is about a seven and a half for me as an adult viewer. I think were I a younger, uh, were I were younger. Uh, I think I probably would have called, thought it was like an eight and a half or a nine. I think it its appeal is definitely for a younger crowd. I think it's a fine film. Um, like I said, it, it is a bit slow in parts, especially in the middle. But I think it's a really well done film. And the more we kind of talk about it, I feel I'm bouncing off of your enthusiasm for it. So I originally rated a seven. I think it's a seven and a five, seven point five. Okay, that's much lower than I thought based on on the comments you made. Um, I think this is an exceptional film. Uh, I I know I'm not its target audience, but I enjoyed being its audience when I watch it. It's definitely a movie I will recommend to friends. I've actually heck, I already recommended it to a colleague uh, today who is getting ready to start teaching the Percy Jackson book, and uh, I thought I was like, oh, you you need to see this movie because this is right up your alley. It's in that same same wheelhouse. So I'm going to go with a nine for it. I think it's a very solid film. I. I highly recommend it. I do think the CG could be better in a couple places. I agree with you about the pacing. Uh, it doesn't need to be a two-hour film, but uh, I think and I think it's a nine. Now, as far as it being a kids-on-bike movie, yeah, I mean, we kind of discussed, is this a kids-on-bike movie? And I still think using all of Britain as the specific location is a little generous to it. So I'm going to go a little lower on it, but still not that low because I do think it's an exceptional kids on bikes movie with the exception, of course, of not having bikes. But as we've said, that's not an essential part. Uh, I'm going to give it an eight as a kids on bikes movie. I'm going to give it a seven. Uh, and I think part of it is there is a chosen one quality to it that does kind of separate them. It becomes a lot of his story. 
And I think there's there are some things that I think it falls outside of the kids on bikes genre a little bit. Though it's funny because I was like almost wondering the first time I watched it if I was going to have to defend this film against you. I'm really glad you're on board. I'm giving it a higher rating. I was originally my original rating for this was a 6.5 as a kids on bikes film, and I don't think that's the case. Um, and I'm especially looking at how we've rated other films that we have reviewed. I don't want to rate it higher as a Kids on Bikes than any of the other ones, because I, I don't think it is as appropriate Kids on Bikes-wise. But, you know, Goonies, they're barely on bikes, but I think it is, you're right, The it's the location um, that kind of d- drops some points, the, the lack of character development. But, yeah, I mean, it's still an exceptional film. Oh, I, yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with the seven, so. All right, that brings us to our favorite part of the show, uh, our draft, where we are each drafting a Kids on Bikes team of seven mundane kids and one peripheral adult. Just to remind you, our teams so far, Drew, who's on your team? So, uh, going in the order of the films that we've already reviewed, uh, I have from The Goonies, I have Data. From Attack the Block, I have Moses. Uh, from The Lost Boys, I have Grandpa Emerson. From Now and Then, I have Sam. And from Super 8, I have Alice. Uh, and I have Mikey from The Goonies, Pest from Attack the Block, Edgar Frog from The Lost Boys, Roberta as my adult, Dr. Roberta, as we've been calling her, from Now and Then, <laughs> and Charles from Super 8. Yeah. And I think now might be a good time to kind of bring something up that sure. – um, Someone on the Facebook page has asked, you know, we posted pictures of our team. You know, right now we've got – what, five, one, two, three, four, five. We got five members. It's about to be six members. We talked about a team of seven plus one adult. We're going to be discussing 12 movies. Right. Our team is going to be total of eight. So the question now becomes, how do we want to progress when we, we're clearly going to be having extra kids? Are we getting all 12 and then dropping them at the end of the season for a final team? Are we replacing them as we draw them? So when we get to movie number nine, are we then having to replace them? How do you want to do it? I I have a preference, I think, and I actually have a little twist on it, but I'm kind of curious to see where your mind's at with this one. Well, my assumption, and this was, this was your brainchild, uh, we should, we should add a brilliant brainchild, but still your brainchild. Um, my assumption was that we would have to start replacing members. Uh, once we got to that ninth movie that we would have to say, okay, okay. I'm picking this person and I, they're replacing this character, or I'm not picking a person because I'm happy with my team. I like the idea of holding on to all of them until the end. Uh, but I, I want to hear what, what, what other suggestion do you have? Well, listeners, if you have a, if after I give my suggestion, if you have a different one, please let us know. Um, you of course can get in touch with us in all the ways that we'll be describing at the end of the podcast. So here's my pitch. I really like the idea that at some point in time, we get a chance, if we want to, to go through the other person's discards to pull one as a replacement. Oh. Just one. Just one. And it's not necessary. That may work better in a live show when we have 12 and we we pare down. Or it could also work if we're... This is what becomes more challenging because it actually makes the strategy of selecting a little bit more difficult if we're replacing as is. I'm I have two possibilities for for characters I want to select and I know I'm going first. I haven't even decided who I want. Yeah, I was going to say speaking of the strategy of selection, uh this was my pick, so Drew gets to pick first on the draft. So how we decide this might affect my selection in that I'm not 100% sure 
the character I pick from this film is going to make it to the final team. Mm. It might be it might be an easy one to drop, right? And therefore, picking them almost feels inconsequential if we ha- if we're doing it the way where we're we're replacing as we we get them. If we're waiting to the end, that might change because I'll be able to see the bigger picture and see really how my final team is. And again, the selection of these teams, could we actually invite people to play a game of kids on bikes with us and have them role play as our teams? It's a possibility. It's not something I want to uh, discount. Uh, again, it depends. <laughs> We're still six months away from that. <laughs> six and a half months away from even worrying about that. So, Rafe, do you have a preference? I think... I, I hadn't considered it before, but now that you've brought it up, I kind of like the idea of drafting for our team and then at the end discarding down to to a total, to, a, to, to, okay. our, to our actual cut total. Do you like the idea of picking a discard from the other player's team? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because that the discard thing is interesting, too, if we did the replacement immediately, because you'd be like, you're dropping so and so. Oh well, then I know who I'm going to be taking. But but I think I think this there will be more fun in the end. Okay, so great. I am also making the assumption that we can't choose Merton in this selection. Our criteria was seven mundane kids and one peripheral adult. Merton is not old enough to count as a peripheral adult, and is a technically pa- magical. He's he's a powered kid, so no, I yeah. don't think he's okay. available. I think that's fair, and I think because he ages backwards, it's only his physical body that is young. His mind right. is an adult, so I think okay, I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, and I want to walk. I want to walk you through what my possible selection. Sure, I'm thinking about choosing one of the two bullies. Okay, for this one, I think Lance is such a jerk that I, I I'm very curious as to what the injection of his personality would do to the dynamics of a team. And again, this is both a writer and a game master thinking about how players interact with one another and how drama makes for an interesting game versus, well, you know, there's an advantage to having him. There isn't really an advantage to having them there other than potentially the money that he's got, which we haven't really got. They're still, you know, beating up kids for their lunch money. So maybe he's he's not as wealthy as uh, the movie lets on. And the other is Kay, because having a, a, a strong woman of color on a team is never going to be a bad thing. And again, because I have Moses, who is also a bully, if she is drawn oh to other bully characters and there's a power dynamic. Okay, I'm just going to choose K. I'm choosing K. I think that's what I'm doing. I think there's a really interesting idea of of splitting the party with allegiances. And I think K leads herself to a really interesting party schism. So I am going to go select K for my for this from this film. K was high on my consideration as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some of the reasons you listed, of course, I don't have a bully leader in my team right now. And uh, you're right, absolutely, Moses and uh, K. Uh, that interaction would be beautiful. That, that would be. I want to see that scene now. Um, Joe, yeah. Cornish, Joe Cornish, write that scene. Uh, put put, <laughs> put K in uh, Attack the Block Two, please. Block Two. Um, yeah, I am. I'm going to go with Betty. Yeah, for mine because. 
every party needs a Sam, and maybe he, mm-hmm. uh, maybe he's not named Sam, but I throughout the entire movie was like, that is Samwise Gamgee. That is exactly yeah. if they if they did a new Lord of the Rings, that's who should play Samwise Gamgee. Like he's he's got it down pat, and I think it's funny. I'm looking at your team is kind of built on that bully outsider kind of concept with, you know, Moses and with Alice and now with Kay. Um, and my team is, I'm not saying I'm the good guys and you're the bad guys, but my team is built more on almost kind of on the chivalric code that is uh, at the center of this movie with the heart of my leader being the heart. And I, I think uh, uh, Bedivere would be a good companion to Mikey's leadership. And I was just going to say the exact same thing, because technically right now you've got Pest, Right. As your second. And Pest is a fine lieutenant, but isn't the kind of, like, he might bulk at some of the stuff that um, Mikey decides to do. Whereas Betters, I think, is gonna, is gonna be into it. Um, yeah, no, I think that, I think that actually works better with, I like how our teams are evolving, not who necessarily we want, um, but who, what the team needs right. and how it would actually evolve in itself. So I think that's really very quite cool. All right, so I've added Betty to my team. You have added Kay to your team. It is time for a short little break, and when we come back, we will talk about gamifying the kid who would be king. Hello, friends and neighbors. I am your friendly death investigator, host of the podcast Autopsy. Autopsy is a show where we take real autopsy reports from popular cases and some not so popular and break down the information discovered by pathologists and how it all led to their final determined cause and manner of death. Think of us as an addendum to many true crime podcasts you may already be a listener of. Every month we release a new episode and then a more informal discussion episode follows halfway through the month. We are available on virtually every platform, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and even YouTube. So check us out. Now, back to your regularly scheduled program. Welcome back. Now is the time that we are going to discuss how we can gamify the kid who would be king uh, so that anyone can play a role-playing game session inspired by the movie regardless of the system that they're using. Now, one of the things that we've really been focusing on is um, a session zero and what you need to discuss with your players before we get started, right? The idea behind this is, too, your players are going to be on board with playing the kid who would be king as a role-playing game, right? So that's the first thing. Are you springing this on them? Well, maybe. Maybe they're going to love it. But if if that's not what you want to do, let's discuss how you would approach this. Rafe, are there anything specific that you think we need to discuss in, in the session zero um, with this one? I do, uh, because you made the comment earlier before we got into the gamification, but it fits in this part, which is if you are doing a chosen one narrative, then it automatically elevates one of the players up, as you as you pointed out. One of the characters then gets elevated up because they are the chosen one. And I think the group gets a say in who is going to be the chosen one in that zero session. I think they, if that's the route you're going to go, then they have to decide 
which of them is going to be the chosen one. That helps you as the game master from showing favoritism towards one player in particular that you might pick because, you know, you know they're a strong role player or you know that they're going to show up consistently or they're your best friend, you know, whatever. You get that off of the table. You let the players pick who's going to be the chosen one. Yeah, and I agree with you 100% with that one. Especially, too, the, the nice thing is if the players are on board with that character narrative, just like we talked about Joe in uh, Super 8, uh, they can help build that narrative around the character right. versus, oh, but I want it to be so-and-so. Now, the other way of approaching this is potentially one of you is going to be the chosen one, and I'm not going to tell you which one it is. I'm going to let your play decide that. One of you will be there, but like who, whoever draws the sword could be a thing. And it could be something interesting where like, oh, there's a sword in the stone and everyone you know fights each other to pull it up. And then, uh, you know, Beth is playing this character and she sees there's a shiny rock on the ground and picks it up. And it turns out that the, it was, in fact, the rock was the, the one that makes you the chosen one. <laughs> you know, like if you want to be that kind of game master, that's fine as long as it has been t- discussed in the the session zero that, that a chosen one narrative is, is going to be played. Because again, it's it's difficult to, to pull off, but we are dealing with the, the um, inspired by a film and, and that's how films work. As yes. opposed to for games. I don't, I mean, there's some family issues with this one, but I think really more than anything else, they justify what is your typical Disney, Disney orphan narrative, which is you don't have any parents, therefore you can go out on an adventure. We have a mom at home. We don't see any of the other kids' parents at, just at all. Like the parents are just almost inconsequential. Right. Um, to the narrative. And I think it's a really sweet story between um, Alex and his mom. But yeah, I don't think that we really need to gamify that, especially no. because the the quest to find the dad is what I may have cut from yes. the story to to make it a little bit more streamlined. So yeah, I think we're, we're probably good. I don't think there's anything else I really need to discuss in a, in a session zero. I think I think that's the really the most important one. Okay, uh, then we get into our truths. But before we get into the truths, uh, you and I took very different routes towards the idea of gamifying this. You looked at it on on a, a level of this is the kid who would be king. It is an Arthurian legend. The kid finds the sword, uh, etc. And adapting that. And the question that I was asking at the forefront of everything is... This has already been done with the Arthurian legend in The Kid Who Would Be King. I want to bring my players something inspired by this, but not necessarily, again, you know, scene for scene, this movie. What other legend or myth would I put at the center of this story? Uh, because I think you can choose something because, again, this follows that monomyth. So as long as you're familiar with how other myths and other legends and other tales follow the monomyth... You, you, it doesn't have to be Arthur. You know, I could, I could see doing this, you know, with Mjolnir is the Excalibur and they become, they are Thor or, you know, John Henry's hammer or Paul Bunyan's axe and go in, in an American set version of this. So I, I could see that. So my question for you before we actually get into the, the truths that, that are a little more Arthurian, uh, is what other stories can you think of that a game master could adapt to make a story inspired by this, but not directly to the Arthurian legend side, side of things? Yeah, I, listen, I don't think you need to even choose another story. This is this is such a I mean, I could easily just say Star Wars, right? It's like, "Oh, oh no, Luke, you're taking up your father's sword uh right. and leading the rebellion you, and uniting people um and Merlin." I mean, it's like it's it's right 
there. Oh, Harry Potter, you're going to get your, you're not getting your father's wand, but you're getting your father's treasure and you're, you're inheriting your father's uh, legacy. Your father right. was a jerk, by the way. Um, <laughs> you know, like the stories are all following those lines. I think basically if, if you as a game master want to pull this off, every time there is a specific pronoun being uh, or like proper noun sorry proper noun is what i want to use the proper noun put it in quotation marks you have pulled excalibur out of the stone it doesn't matter it doesn't have to be a sword it doesn't have to be excalibur you don't have to be an arthurian legend a chosen one is chosen either because of something they did or because of something that happens to them it doesn't have to be a sword you don't have to pull it from a stone it doesn't have to be uniting england you know when we go over our truths Yes, I'm using the the movie for this, but but the truths are universal in the same way that Campbell's um, Hero's Journey is universal. Right. I mean, it basically, you and I have not discussed my Hero's Journey role-playing game that I, I, I have been working on for the better part of two years. But I have a Hero's Journey role-playing game that is specifically designed to teach the Hero's Journey. And it's a two-pager right now. Um, I'm trying to whittle it down to a single page, and that's where the, the, the difficulty lies in it. But it, it's still a really interesting concept. But, I mean, each and every one of you, if you've run a role-playing game before, you've probably already <laughs> run this movie in, in its broadest sense. Right. It, it's, it is just the hero's journey. And that's why I wanted to bring up the hero's journey at the top of the show. And that's why I wanted and, and to re- right refer back so. to it here, because that's what your that's, that's your model. It, it, you know, your yeah. real inspiration comes down to familiarize yourself with the hero's journey. But yeah, you, absolutely. you, we have put together truths for something a little more directly inspired by the kid who would be king. So let's, let's go ahead and talk about those. What, what's your first truth, Drew? Well, I mean, the first thing is it's, it's the, the pin pinnacle of this story, which is one of the kids has been chosen because, you know, drawing Excalibur from the stone incites the plot. Whatever right. your plot is, whatever the narrative, uh, Merlin doesn't appear until the sword is drawn. Evil doesn't take place until the sword is drawn. The plot doesn't happen. I mean, you don't have to do this in session one. You could do it in session two. You know, you can do a whole session of character development. You can understand that your main characters or what your relationship with your characters are. I I like those. But if you're going to do this in a one shot rather than a campaign, this is one that you, by the way, you could do in a campaign. I haven't really thought of it um, in that sense. And if we're looking at like, you know, a 10 session campaign for it, there are some really good role playing games out there uh, for it. Uh, I'm looking at you, Blades of the Dark, even though you're super, super grim for something along along these terms. But if you're doing it as a one shot, you know, just know the moment the sword is drawn, that is when the action kicks off. And I'm and when I say sword is drawn, sword is in quotations, drawn is in quotations. You know, like whatever the inciting action is. I mean, that's the truth. Once you be, once the chosen one becomes a chosen one, your story is ready. It's it's happening. Yeah, absolutely. That's the first and 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 deepest and hardiest truth of all of them. And everything is tied to that object too. I think is is important because a lot of the action is going to happen around whoever is using that op- uh, object, whether they have it, someone else has taken it from them, or it has broken and they have to get it fixed somehow. <laughs> what else? Rafe, what do you got? What do you, what's, what's, what's a truth that you think uh, we need in order to get this rolling? Well, one of the things I liked about the movie, uh, and and it it's something that – this isn't the only movie to use it. I've seen it used in video games, of course, quite quite prominently, um, is the the division of night and day. So, mm-hmm. and I, I think I like that idea that good, whatever you want to call it, the, the, the allied forces of your protagonists are strong at, by day and evil appears at night. 
you know, and the, the, there's that the, that division is kind of important. If if they do things during the day, then they have support. But if they do things at night, then they're going to encounter obstacles. And at the heart of that is the idea that there is an eclipse coming, which allows there to be both day and night at the same time. So yeah. you you bring that in as well. I, I love that idea. Uh, it, it and I think that's something that you should keep in your campaign. And the eclipse gives a ticking clock, which you know, of course, we love. We love a ticking clock. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and and I think um, GMs don't be afraid to to reverse it. You know, the right. the heroes can be free to run around at night, and evil could appear in the day. You know, especially if you wanted to kind of eschew the whole flaming zombie horse night thing. And uh, you wanted to go a more kind of malevolent route where you could bring like a bad adults, like political, like I want to take a political thing uh, going in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's if you want to keep uh, adults when the, the switch happens. You know, the, the important thing, too, is this goes into the next one. If you have been, and again in quotations, knighted, you can participate in the action. So in order for you to build an army, you have to knight. You have to have, find people who are, or will um, become allies with you. Now, if you're doing a Star Wars or a Shadowrun kind of adventure, your knighting them could be implanting them with a chip that allows them to see these transdimensional beings that can only travel at certain points in time in the day or in the nighttime. If you're doing something like Call of Cthulhu, it could be carving a rune into them or doing a blood ritual or something along. I know, listen, I, but if you're doing, uh, you know, there's a, there's an, any number of things. If you're, if you're choosing to play in a world in which magic actually exists, I mean, any, anything could be your inciting ritual with that. But I, I do like that switch um, and the initiation. I think both of those are really good. And there's something else I feel like there's, um, there's a real truth at the heart of this, because we are talking about if we decide to do the Arthurian legend, and that is the chivalric code. Yes, absolutely. Which I, uh, that aspect of the film, because it is a gross oversimplification and misrepresentation <laughs> of the real chivalric code, by the way. Right, right. But, but that's, I, I loved that aspect of this movie that Cornish takes the concept of the chivalric code that the knights did actually go by. And makes it something that exists well for the story that he is telling instead of being hampered by the real chivalric code. And don't be afraid to change the code for your game session to the rules that you want. Now, I happen to love the rules that they came up with for this, which was to, to honor those who you love, refrain from wanton offense, speak the truth at all times and persevere in any enterprise until the end. I mean, what what a great code. But if those don't work for you, then create a new code. Yeah. And I recommend um, gamifying that code, too, um, if your players want, which would be something along the lines of um, maybe assign uh, a D6 to each one of the codes and start them off with either start them off in in the middle, like on a three, and as they do things that boy, the, the like build up the code, Make the die go higher. If they do things that don't follow the code, drop that die down. Um, right. And so they can actually see. And so it might be that you can't do X until everybody's code is up to snuff. Or maybe one person gets booted out of a scene because they have been not agreeing. I mean, like the idea is if you're agreeing to do the movie, your characters are going to tr- be trying to uphold this code, right? Like at a certain point in time, everyone becomes on board with the mission. You know, so what if your ro- your Lance is your rogue and you decided, well, well, because my character's Lance, he gets to be a jerk to everybody for like the first three sessions. Don't be that guy. 
more cow. <laughs> don't, don't. There's, there's, there's a time and place. Like you can do it once, maybe twice. But like, if you go off the rails with that kind of behavior, no one wants to invite you back to. I certainly won't invite you back to my table. But you know, it, it's just a way that too that if you're, um, this is a great way for the GM to kind of uh, influence the how they want the game run by right. creating these codes and going. Listen, you need 24 points to uh, get up there. All all four of your things need to be at six before like you can assume your ultimate form or whatever, whatever it is. It's up to you. But there is fun ways to to gamify that to to make it part of the play. So, yeah. We should probably talk about Merlin yes. um in this one. Merlin is essentially the an NPC, but he's also really just us. I mean, they're the, Merlin's the game master jumping in, giving you advice helping you out in a situation that's really dire. I mean, like, let's say that I'm playing this game with a couple of 10-year-olds, right? And they are new to the game, and maybe they're making some poor choices, or they've got some really bad roles, and something's about to waste them. Uh, Merlin can jump in. Um, We actually see Merlin appear at night, even though they're not supposed to, uh, the first time to save him, to basically explain, to give a little bit of an info dump. Right. And it never happens again until the, the eclipse. So you're allowed to do that. Use Merlin, but don't overuse Merlin. Uh, the truth is essentially Merlin should be there to to help your players, is ultimately there to make sure that they get to the end of the, the game session. Right. And, and you know, in the movie, he's limited by the time that he can appear. He, he has to recharge after he uses his abilities. Uh, I think those are good mechanics. You know, the the whole night and day duality thing got me thinking, well, why not add a Lady Hawk spin into right. it that the support is available but is different by day than is by night? So if you want Merlin's help, you have to get his aid by day, but then you have something else that can help you by night or something like that. Like an owl, right. for instance. He cannot assume a human form and use his magical powers by nighttime, but he will be able to fly around and give you fair warning if you're about to be snuck up. It's not as good, but it's something that's there. And and again, you you kind of have the the game master's invisible hand. It's something that we didn't like in the Goonies, but um, <laughs> we also understand that sometimes it's necessary. And when you're dealing with like complex things, and this is also going to be a game, and we're like one of my last truths is going to involve large scale NPC use and combat, which is not something I would generally recommend for amateur game masters because large scale combat with multiple multiple characters can become really tricky and crunchy, right? So we're using a lot of rules for that. Not every system has something in there for that. So I think it becomes just kind of behooves you to relax a little (laughs) when it comes to those rules. But, you know, that's up to you. That's up to you. Um, Let's see. What have we, I'm trying to think what we covered so far. Excalibur is the inciting, isn't it? Eclipse, day and night's really good. The code is good. Merlin as an NPC, knighted characters doing their thing. Again, if you are sticking to the movie, the joy of that third act of getting everybody in your school to band together. And like again, no no one who's good dies in this movie. This is not a film where like anyone gets fridged to show us how serious this this thing is. This is a kids film and there's a joy to this film. You can tell there's a joy to this film visually because all their armor is super, super shiny all the way through right. as opposed to gritty night story where their armor is beaten and, and, and like as the t- as his rallies his troops, the armor gets shinier and shinier to show that he's actually accomplishing gold. But, you know, this is a kid's film. So um, you at some point in time have to rally the troops, but they're not going to believe you until 
you have, I don't know, reached all 24 of your points, right? Like that right. kind of a thing. You cannot rally your troops. So you, maybe that's that's a fun mechanic where you have the ticking clock, like time is going down and your chivalric code is low and you actually have to do good deeds. And it's like, oh my God, we have to do this. Quick, help that old lady across the street. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what you do and that adds a, a moment of levity because you are in fact in a full suit of armor carrying a sword while you're doing it. <laughs> you know, like, even though that scene is not in the movie, uh, we are here to gamify it. And so, I mean, you know, the idea is you're not going to be able to defeat the enemy on your own. Your party by themselves shouldn't be able to defeat them. If you want to, it's fine. Is that a part that you could skip? Maybe. But is it missing out on the joy that is that final act? Yes. So um, I think that would be really fun. And again, a base under siege, very similar to attack the block. Yes. Um, there are some game mechanics that you could do with something along those lines where I would, if we were playing this game Rafe, I would definitely print out a school map. Yes. Um, and I would go, all right, how are you going to defend this? And then I would just roll dice to see if the traps work and just, you know, however much damage is, it's taking a, that percentage of the overall evil army until, you know, you know, you know, you have to defeat the big bad and then all of them disappear. It's, it's, it's how it always works, but um, it's still super fun. And yeah, exactly. And then you get the super fun of uh, having the players get to improvise weaponry and figure out, yes. you know, what kind of, and, and we, we've talked about that several different sessions or several different uh, episodes, uh, you know, that, 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 that seems like a fun idea to let their imaginations go wild. It certainly was fun to watch in this movie. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Drew, what yes. are our important set pieces for this? I mean, your main character's home. Uh, one of the things we didn't mention it, that does bring this a little bit more into the um, Kids on Bikes film, and one of the things I love about it is when it's clear that Betters and Alex live in the same neighborhood because Betters walks across the garden wall to get to him from right. one part to the other. Love it. It's the same thing as our Goonies and their signals or our um, Now and Then and their treehouse to treehouse thing. Love it. And so the home, your home apartment complex, it's clear that both of our bullies aren't from that. It's very easy to make them a part of it. And that could be one of the ways that you bring them together. They could be the neighborhood bully. But then during one of their bully sessions, the inciting incident happens and they have to help. So that's a, a great first session one for that. School for the final session. Which um, going to what we talked about with Super 8 is, I, I love that, you know, it, with Super 8, my comment was, even though it's closed for the summer, the school is such an important location. And I, I feel like this just hones in on that as well. It's an important location yeah. for these kids. That's where they decide yeah. to make their stand. They can make their stand anywhere in town. They choose the school. Yeah, agreed. And it's because it's what they know. And, it, and it, again, it's, it's and those are the only two that I think are absolutely necessary. There is a middle section in this where they go to the underworld, they travel to Stonehenge. Stonehenge kicks them out of one um, Neolithic ruins. I don't think any of that's necessary in the game. I think it's interesting. Yeah. I think if you want to do it, you can. And if you're playing in a, you know, a D&D realm, you don't have to have Stonehenge. You, you know, one magical portal to the next is fine. But I think the school and home are the only two that are really necessary. Unless you want to have, what was it? Cluck Cluck Chicken or something? <laughs> Whatever your local greasy chicken place is. Oh, so gross. I love so it. gross. I love the it. The potion. Yeah, I, you know, you've got to have some potion play in, in, in this one, too. But I think, as far as set pieces are considered, that's the only two I would really focus on. Okay. Uh, before we move into the RPGs best suited, which may end up answering my question, I do have a Rafe's question for Drew that occurred to me <laughs> while 
I was watching this. Uh, and, and in part because I was watching this and in part because of a conversation that was brought up uh, in the Kids on Bikes Facebook community uh, within the past few days. And, and that is, remember, before I watched this movie, I thought we were doing time travel. I thought Kid found the Excalibur and it transported him back to the past, you know, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court style type thing. Yes. And that's that's not this story. But you could do that. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. So my question is, because inevitably, every episode, we're doing kids on bikes movies. Every episode, your your RPG's best suited is kids on bikes. I mean, that, that that's going to be on your list. If it's not on your list, then we're doing something wrong, right? <laughs> right. So would you, because I've run two different campaigns with you in kids on bikes, and one of the first questions you ask the players when they're putting together the group is, what time period do you want this set in? Now, we've always interpreted that as 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, right, you know, whatever. But would you do a kids on horses game? Would you do a medieval game using the kids on bikes rules? Yeah, I would. I would. So the tricky thing with that is if if we're doing Arthurian, the part of it's what's interesting is, is the Arthurian legends real? Right. And the realization that it is, is kind of the joy of the film. So setting it in the time of the Arthurian legends would be interesting. So are you asking me if I would take modern kids and send them back in time I'm just to asking the Arthurian legends? Or I'm just asking if you'd use the kids on bikes system for a medieval set game. Yeah, I think the the, the powered by the kids on bikes rules is is very easy to switch. I mean, there is a kids on brooms that does involve magic, right. um, and so I would probably look at that as well. There's a couple of other systems that could work with it, like Hero Kids is designed to be kids in a medieval setting. So you know, maybe you could do that instead. That one as well. I mean, again, D and D can work fine. You can tweak Dungeons and Dragons to really i feel like these kids are the least combative of all the kids that we've like even like sure Kay and lance are are bullies but that's all they are they're just bullies they're just gonna push you over right and i was gonna say that's that's moses is gonna stick a knife in your face right they don't even throw a punch they just push the kid over every time that there's a fight yeah this is a bloodless film and i think like we we talk about not not running into combat. I think if you're sticking to the spirit of no, I, it's basically bloodless. The only one who ever gets actually hurt, even though they all handle the sword the wrong way. I'm sorry, Excalibur should not be handled by the blade. But that that is another <laughs> little, I guess, bad. But you know, more more gotta get stabbed a bunch. She's a monster, and uh, yeah, so okay, yeah, I I, I would. Okay. I would. I think. It, I think that the beautiful one of the things the reason we like the system so much is it is incredibly versatile, um, and it's very abstract in that you can, or sorry, I shouldn't say abstract. I should say subjective in that you can tweak the rules to to make it work to your advantage, which is one of the things that I do with every role playing game I, I buy. Right. Right. All right. So, what games would you use to run a the kid who would be king inspired campaign or inspired session? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I named just four. I, I think, yeah, D&D works. Kids on Bikes, of course, is always going to work. Kids on Brooms works a little bit, especially since you Merlin's not the only one, spoilers, who uses magic um, by the True. end of it. Hero Kids, again, is a bloodless system um, where you where you play kids. There's a couple of other introduce your kids to role-playing games, uh, especially the fantasy settings that work out really really well with that. Those ones are in the truest sense. Um, one of our listeners was recommending Fate, which is not a system that I've really spent much time with. But 
by uh, the next session for our intermission for this one, I'm going to look over the rules. Actually, there's another one too, Arium, uh, which is a, a system that I, I supported on Kickstarter a while back. And one of the module, the only module that they've done so far, um, Arcadia has just kind of has sort of just come out. Um, and that system's really good as well because you can kind of make it your own. So there's, there's a couple. And if you wanted to do this as a campaign, I did mention Blades in the Dark. Blades in the Dark is your, your criminals. But one of the things I think is interesting is Blades in the Dark has a session where you build up influence over a small section of town and it grows and it grows and it grows as you do jobs. That mechanic could be interesting if applied to how your character gains influence so that people will follow them. There was an old first or second edition. Oh boy, I'm, I'm going to show my memory is real bad. I think it's called Birthright. There's an old D&D session module where it actually had you build influence so that you could, as a royalty, gain followers. So I would go back maybe. I'm sure someone has updated it to 5e or maybe you're playing second edition and, and look at that. And maybe apply that Dungeons and Dragons to kind of build to that third act, especially if you're doing more than one session. Yeah, kind of a campaign would be kind of fun. All right. Anything else to add in here? I'm, I'm really surprised we've said as much as we have right. uh, for this one. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised because I was actually thinking this was going to be a shorter episode. But um, you can tell when we really like something or we just get more comfortable with the format. So, no, I think we're good. I think we've covered a lot. And whatever we don't cover, we're going to cover uh, uh, in two weeks for our intermission. That's right. Join us in two weeks for our The Kid Who Would Be King intermission, where we'll discuss our second opinions and what we might have missed the first time around. We'll go over listener emails, chat about what grabbed our attention on Kickstarter, and Drew will select our next Kids on Bikes film. Uh, in the meantime, if you have opinions of your own about anything we've discussed today, you can join in the conversation. How can they get in touch with us, Drew? Well, you, if you feel so inclined, you can email us at uh, the never say die podcast at gmail.com. You can find us uh, on our Facebook group, which is Never Say Die Cast. It is a private group, but all you have to do is say, I want to join, and you're automatically in. I apologize again, and I'll never stop apologizing for it. We're on Twitter at Never Say Diecast. And thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song and Megan Daly for our wonderful show artwork. And remember, even if the potion you need to regain your strength is disgusting <laughs> uh, and highly unhealthy, never say die.